Our scripture reading from God's Word, the Bible, this morning is taken from Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 28. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Will you bring some strange things to mind? We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing else except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Thank you, Nora. Well, good morning. As many of you know, I grew up in a small town in eastern Oregon, Burns. Never traveled much. Ended up in a college in San Francisco Bay Area, and I showed up at my dorm, and I'd been assigned to the Chicano theme house. What that meant was half of the people in my dorm were militant Chicanos planning rallies and protests to further the rights of Mexican-Americans. One day, Luis walked into my room and saw a Christian poster on the wall, and he said, you're not one of those Jesus freaks, are you? So you can imagine 
how intimidated I was by this whole thing. I mean, this is a world that I knew nothing about. And I remember as a new Christian trying to figure out how in the world do I share the gospel with people that are so different from me and look at life so differently. I made some friends. We had a small Bible study, but basically I never figured it out, never figured out how to reach them well. You know, I think as we live in our current culture, I think we're finding as Christians that the world around us, people know less and less about Jesus. And their values and the way they look at life, their worldviews are so much different so that we are becoming, as Christians, more and more foreign to the very world in which we live. And so the question for us is, if we're called to be witnesses, which we are, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. How in the world can we cross some of those boundaries and learn to bring the gospel to people that look at life so differently than we do? I think as Paul walked into Athens that day so long ago, almost 2,000 years ago in this passage we're looking at today, as he walked into Athens, I think he felt that odd, out-of-place feeling too. You know, he knew some Greek and Roman philosophy and culture, obviously, to some extent, but this was not the Jewish culture that he grew up in. How could he bring the good news to this culture that was so different? Well, I think the way that Paul shares the gospel with the Athenians is brilliant. And I think what he shows us is a way to begin to think about how to reach those people around us in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever they are, that look at life so differently and begin to cross those boundaries and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to an increasingly foreign culture around us. I wish I had known this passage better when I was in my college days. So let's pray and look at what Paul does to bring the gospel to them. Lord, thank you for your word. Again, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and able to penetrate to the very divisions of soul and spirit and how we need you to do that, Lord, because as he walks into Athens and sees all these idols, we have to confess that we struggle with our own idols. And if we're going to love people well, we need to deal with those and then begin to understand the idols of the people around us. So please, Lord, teach us through your word today by the power of your spirit how we need you We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my message today is about confronting idols. So if you think about crossing cultural boundaries, why why are idols the key? Why is that so important? Well, because we are all built to worship. Every human is built to worship God. And if we don't worship him, then we will all turn to something else, some idol, something we think to that will bring us the good life. But all other things besides God himself will leave us unsatisfied. And so if we want to reach people's hearts and speak into the longings of their lives, then it's really helpful to think in terms of the idols that they are depending on for life. Because that is a doorway into their very souls to bring the gospel. So in verse 16, as Paul 
brings, walks into Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I don't think Paul was really there to evangelize. It seems after he got run out of Thessalonica and then Berea, he was just kind of licking his wounds and trying to recover from that. But he gets to Athens and he starts looking around and he sees all these idols throughout the city. And it says he was stabbed in spirit. Oh, that we could be so unnerved by the idols we see in our own culture that we would be stabbed in spirit at the brokenness and the loss that people are living for, trying to find life from. I want to show you the map of, as he made this trek, show you where he went from Berea all the way down to Athens, this major philosophical city in Achaia of the day, Greece today. City, the city was full of idols. As Paul walked into Athens, show you this next picture, he saw on the hill, on the Acropolis, the temple of Athena that you can still see today. Athena, the goddess of war, She was a goddess of wisdom. The Athenians looked to it. That's where they got their name, Athens, named after this goddess. But not only was there this huge temple to Athena, but there were idols everywhere. One contemporary has said that in Athens there were 30,000 idols in the city. You could go on all the street corners and there would be a little shrine and you'd see a little statue or something where you could burn incense or you could make an offering. You could do something to try to worship the gods. Virtually every corner had a shrine to a god. And the way people thought is, wow, I need good crops this year, so I'm going to find the gods that are especially helpful with crops. And you'd do several offerings to different gods and trying to figure out who to serve. If you wanted to have a good birth, you'd go to the goddess of fertility or whoever that was and good health and a good spouse, whatever you wanted, you'd try to figure out the God and do an offering so that you could get the good life. That's what idols are all about. How do we get the good life? How do we make life work for us? Well, in verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So he went to the Agora, which is the marketplace. This is the marketplace here in Athens today. That whole area was the huge marketplace. You see the red building. That building has been rebuilt, but that was full of little shops. But that whole area was where everybody hung out. They didn't have TV and other things. If you wanted to get information, if you wanted to find out what was going on, you'd go to the marketplace and everybody hung out there. So Paul went there and began sharing the gospel. He was so concerned for them. And there he ran into some philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, it says. Now, what I want to tell you and make very clear is there were different idols than just these physical gods that they worshipped. The Epicureans, for example, their philosophy was that The most important thing in life is pleasure. They actually didn't believe in a God. They thought there was no life after death, nothing else, and so what you would do is just seek as much pleasure as you can and avoid as much pain 
as you could. Does that sound familiar today? Sound like a lot of people around us? Yeah. The Stoics, on the other hand, had a different perspective. Their perspective is self-sufficiency is what's important. I need to be able to be strong and handle life on my own. They kind of believed in gods, but they thought gods were in everywhere. They were in nature. And so the most important thing to get along with the gods was simply be in tune with nature. Be in tune with your own feelings. Be in tune with nature. Sounds a lot like Idaho, doesn't it? For a lot of Idahoans, you know, their God is nature. And submit to whatever comes along in life. Well, they listened to him and they said, you know what, we want to take you to the Areopagus, Mars Hill. And that's that rock in front you can see looking down over the city, that rock where there's people on top of it. That was called Mars Hill. That's where the philosophers hung out. And so they brought him to Mars Hill. It says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, verse 19, and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now notice verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Think about that for a minute. Their lives were so bored, they were looking for some kind of stimulation that they went where they could try to hear something new. This is kind of what I would call the God of maybe entertainment. (laughs) I need some stimulation. I need to hear the latest. I need to find something interesting. I need to hear the latest TED Talk or the latest podcast. I need to keep up with the news. I might miss something. All that feels good for a time, but again, it's kind of an idol of, uh, I've got to be stimulated. I've got to hear the latest new tidbit. That's what they were doing. So you see all these different idols that were going on there that actually are very similar to what we experience today. In fact, I have a question for you. What would Paul see if he showed up today in Boise? What do you think he would see as the idol's of our culture. Now I want to want you to put on your imagination because I want to take you through a little process of thinking that way what it might look like if Paul showed up in Boise today. Shalom Jackson. <laughs> Thanks for being willing to take me on a brief tour of Boise. Hey, no problem, Paul. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm honored. But let me say you're going to look at a place uh in that robe and sandals. Oh, really? Why is that? (laughs) Well, usually we only wear robes in our bedrooms, if at all. Oh, well, I'm willing to put up with a few stairs. I've experienced a lot worse. (laughs) So, what are these tall buildings in downtown Boise? Oh, those are business buildings where lots of business takes place, planning and deals and money exchanges, lots of work, lots of those kinds of things. You know, all, all about making money. Hmm. So they're basically big temples to the gods of money and success and power. Is that what you're saying? Uh, 
I guess so. I, I, I never really looked at it that way, Paul. Hmm. And what is this? It's, it's big. It looks almost like a lake. It's blue, but uh, it, it just looks strange. It's kind of like grass, but it's blue. What is it? Well, that's called the blue turf. So is that, a, is that some kind of an idol, too? Paul, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> You'll step on way too many toes. <laughs> some kind of sport happens there, but, you know, you don't want to know about it. <laughs> well, you know, you were right about how people dress. People are certainly dressed differently than in my culture. They seem to be really concerned about their physical appearance. But I also notice many of them are walking around or sitting staring at a little thing they're holding in their hands. They're even talking into it. It looks like a little tablet or something. What is that? Oh, that's a cell phone. (laughs) Yeah, it's a new thing that people use to get instant information about the world or to entertain themselves or to take pictures of things or to take pictures of themselves. (laughs) They call that selfies. Uh, But most importantly, it's for staying connected to people who aren't there. They're someplace else. But, you know, thinking about it, people seem pretty addicted to their cell phones. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing, though. I mean, you can use that little thing to stay connected, to talk with and connect with somebody who's somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. It's for talking to them or texting them, you know, writing little notes to them. Wow, that's fantastic. But just one question. If they want to stay connected, why don't they just talk to the people next to them? (laughs) I mean, why are they ignoring them and talking to somebody somewhere else? Uh, That's a good question, Paul. I, I guess too often people don't want to miss out on what might be happening somewhere else and they want to be part of the in group, whatever that is, so... They ignore the people they're actually with. I guess it makes us feel important somehow, Paul. (sighs) Hmm, that seems really sad to me. To see so many addicted to a little device like that. Now what's this place? This looks really impressive. It reminds me of some of the big temple complexes in my day. Oh, this is called a mall. (laughs) It's where you can go to buy things. Oh, great, because I'm starving. (laughs) Can we go get some fruit, you know, some fresh produce or something? Well, you really can't buy that kind of thing here. You can go to a restaurant here, but mostly a mall is a place to buy lots of different things to make your life better. Really? What kinds of things? Things you need? Oh, Lots of things, not just things you need, though. New clothes, tools, gadgets of all kinds, gifts for people. All kinds of things to make your life better. Hmm. So you're saying people in your world, kind of like my world, (laughs) think that buying things they don't really need will make their lives better. Well, when you put it that way, it sounds kind of (laughs) dumb. But yeah, that's what people do in our world. Well, thanks for the tour. To be honest, my heart is broken. 
over the lostness of your culture. Your world is certainly different than mine, but I guess what strikes me is that for most people in my world, everything is attributed to some sort of God. So people are looking to what God they should worship to make their lives better. But in your world, people have just left God totally out of the picture or left him to one day a week. So instead, they worship mankind himself and what man can create. I wrote about that in my letter to the Romans. When we walk away from worship of the true God, we end up worshiping created things. Humankind himself or nature or what mankind makes or idols, that is, gods of our own making. And that always leads to perverted morals, perverted sexuality, and a deep dissatisfaction in the human heart. You know, it strikes me, your world is as full of idols as mine is. But man is so creative, and look at all that he's been able to do, and he's capable of great good. Well, certainly, man was created in God's image, but that image will be deeply tarnished unless a person gives his or her heart to fully worship the true God through Jesus Christ. Only he can satisfy the longings of the human heart. Wow. Thanks for coming, Paul. You've shown me a lot about my own culture that I've never seen before, and you've given me a lot to think about. We are kind of addicted to our cell phones, aren't we? I heard of one guy who dropped his down an outhouse. He was so desperate to get his back, he had his friend hold him by the feet so he could get it. Breathing the gases in there, he actually died trying to get his cell phone back. We do have have idols everywhere. Ray Stedman said 50 years ago, which you can decide how contemporary this is, The God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Idolatry and paganism taught that men had to bring gifts to the gods. They had to do things for their gods to propitiate them and sacrifice to them and bring them all kinds of things. Today, men are still doing the same thing. We're not free from idolatry, for if a god is that which is the most important thing in a person's life, to which he gives his time and effort and energy, that which occupies the primary place of importance to him, then men have many gods even today. Money, fame, your children, yourself. All these and many more things can be your gods. You can even worship your country as your god. I am appalled at the number of people today who worship America and enthrone it as the highest value in life the only thing for which they would give their lives, the only thing worth living for. These false gods make continual demands upon us. They do nothing for us, but we must work for them. And as we look around us, we're talking about God, God's idols that might be seen in our culture, but what's important is understanding that each person has a unique set of idols a unique way of trying to find the good life. And so our task is always not just to think big picture, but think, how is this person depending on something other than God for life? And how do we do that? How do we connect with someone's idols? Well, I think we need to understand that 
as we get into their lives, as we get to know them, we'll begin to see it. It'll begin to be obvious. You'll see the longings of their heart and where they're unsatisfied. But that takes listening to their story. It takes entering their world. It takes finding out who they are and what they really value, what's important to them. It takes building a relationship with them. So Paul, first of all, observes the idols. But then he moves on to expose the idols. Verse 22 and 23, he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. First, Paul compliments him. He says, man, you're very religious. That's great. Religion is good. It's part of us from all the objects of worship that he saw. And it's good for us to understand that idols often have something good in them. John Stone Street wrote, here are four big idols of our age. Sex, state, science, and stuff. (laughs) Each of these things are good in and of themselves. Without sex, there would be no us. Without state, chaos. Without science, ignorance. Without stuff, poverty. But even good things come to occupy a place in our heart where only God belongs when we put our trust in them and see ourselves in their image. They become our God's and we become idolaters. It's true about everything. Cell phones are great, aren't they? They're a wonderful, wonderful gift. But too often our security and our our identity gets wrapped up in them, and we can't do without them. Money in the bank can be good, but when it becomes an idol and our trust is there, then you'll panic when something happens like the downturn of 2008-2009. It shows where your idols are when they get taken away. So Paul exposes how having so many idols, though they can't cover it all, he says, by the way, I noticed one thing. (laughs) You have an idol to an unknown God. You see, the Athenians thought, we have 30,000 gods. But what if we miss one? Life still isn't working out great. Following idols is not working so wonderfully. We better try to cover our bases. So let's, let's make an altar to one. We don't even know who it is, just to an unknown God. And maybe life will work out for us. See, for them, it, all their idols, all their gods, left them empty and secure in the, insecure in the long run. And Paul's just kind of highlighting that. See? Here's where you're missing it. He's exposing for them how their system doesn't work. He's he's pointing out how they feel that they're missing out. And that's why they need to have an unknown God. I, I just think that's brilliant. Paul is so smart because he's exposing the longings of their heart that are unfulfilled in this altar of an unknown God. And it's a good encouragement for us as we seek to bring the gospel to those around us. Observe and pay attention to what people are depending on and then just listen for how things are not working out so well with that. Over time, it's not going to work. Look how they're looking for that for the good life and yet they're not experiencing the good life. Look for the cracks in their system where it's not satisfying their hearts. For a woman who's 
depending on her husband for life. She's looking to him for the good life. You can see how, well, he's, yet he's putting more into work than he is to me and how that leaves her empty and longing. Or a man finding his job over time less and less satisfactory. It's been his idol, but now it's not working out so well. And you can go on and on. If you just listen to people's hearts, you will see the emptiness and the longing as you get to know them. So Paul observes the idols, he exposes the idols, and then he confronts the idolatry. How does he do that? He doesn't actually say, hey, this is wrong. What he does is he exalts the true God. He simply says, this is who God really is. I know you think gods are this way, but they're not. Let me tell you about the true God. And notice how direct he is, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. You don't need 30,000, there's only one. (laughs) Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. All this is a waste. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need your offerings, Athenians. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. See, that takes away that nationalistic idolatry, doesn't it? That somehow we, our race, our people, our country is better than others. No, we're all made from one man, Adam, every human being on earth. And so there really is no division and no distinction, Paul says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Every nation is organized and put there by God. You think man did it? No, God did it. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You see how direct he is. God is creator of the universe. He created everything. He sustains it. Everything you experience that's good is a gift from God. Even your nations and differences in races and all that, that's all designed by God. God is in control, and he rules over the nations, gave birth to every human being. That's essentially his message. And he's close by and wants to know you. But he's no creation of man. He's way above that. See, I I think Paul in his brilliance is really connecting with them. And then he quotes two Greek philosophers to relate these truths to them, Epimenides and Eratus. We found these quotes in their writings. Paul relates something that they would understand to them, these philosophers, these And he quotes, it's like us quoting some book or some song from contemporary culture to say, hey, here's here's what the world thinks around us, but let me tell you about the true God. Or let me tell you how that connects to who God really is. He's not saying Epimenides and Aratas are perfect and everything they say is right. No, but he's connecting to the culture, which is brilliant, I think. St. Augustine said, all truth is God's truth. And if we just look in the songs and the art of culture, I think we see a lot of elements of truth that we can draw from to connect with people around us. But in the end, Paul confronts the idols not by addressing all the ways they look at life, 
not by messed, how messed up they are, but simply by declaring the truths of who God is. John Stott summarized this part of the text better than I could, and he said, really, this is what Paul's saying. God is creator. He's the sustainer of all life. He's the ruler of all nations. He's the father of all humans. And ultimately, he's the judge of the world. John Stott said this, idolatry is the attempt either to localize God, confining him within limits which we impose, whereas he's the creator of the universe, or to domesticate God, making him dependent on us, taming and taping him, whereas he's the sustainer of human life, or to alienate God, blaming him for his distance and silence, whereas he's the ruler of nations, not far from any of us, or to dethrone God, demoting him to some image of our own contrivance or craft, whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. In brief, all idolatry tries to bring him under our control. There is no logic in idolatry. It's perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. So essentially what he's saying is, God is real and he loves you and he's for you, but he calls you to relationship with him and you're missing it. You're missing the true God. Your, God. your idols are inadequate for you to provide the good life that you long for in your heart. We need to do the same as Paul. We need to let people know that God is alive. He's on his throne. He created them. Everything they experience that's good is a gift from him, but he is calling them to relationship with him. He's already been working in their lives. And then Paul goes on to not only confront their idols, but to proclaim Jesus, really, as the answer. Verse 30 and 32 through 32. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given proof or assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is really direct here. He says, God commands all men. This is you, Athenians. He commands you to repent, to change your mind, turn to him, because a day of judgment is coming. It's okay to talk to people about a day of judgment coming. That's who God is. He's creator, sustainer, ruler of all nations, father of all humans, but he's also judge. And he will judge through a man who the proof comes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It always gets back to that. That God intervened in history, sent his son to die, but then he raised him from the dead that is so well documented in history. No other religion or idol can claim such a miraculous intervention in history. No prophet, no one else. People may not accept the fact of the resurrection. The Athenians questioned it. But that is the gospel we are to proclaim, that God intervened in history and the proof is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if God's opened their eyes, they will respond. Now, in the end, they didn't respond that great. Verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others 
with them. In the end, we always point people to Jesus. He's the revelation of God. He's the one who intervened in history. Here, not too many responded. Uh, It kind of raises the issue that, you know, people like the Athenians who were philosophers and who depended so much on their own rationality, figuring everything out. I have to understand it all before I'll accept it. People who live that way find it hard to embrace the gospel. They seem to be the most resistant. It's true today, isn't it? But we still need to proclaim. We're called to be witnesses. And we are living in a world that is increasingly foreign to our Christian faith. So how can we reach out and cross those barriers of people who look at life so differently and have different values and all? Well, you get to know them, you build a relationship, and you begin to observe the idols that they are trusting in for life. And then you begin to expose how inadequate those idols are, and you begin to point out who God really is, and you proclaim Jesus and the resurrection at the right time and ultimately leave the results in God's hands. Brothers and sisters, we are the presence of Jesus on earth. We are his hands and feet, and we are called to be witnesses. May we be God's witnesses to the good news of who God really is in this increasingly foreign world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage, how brilliant Paul was as he dealt with a culture that was so different than his own. And Lord, as we we think about the idols we've talked about, each of us have to confess that we, we have our own idols we depend on too often instead of you. Lord, may you root those out of us. May we confront those so that we can trust you more fully so that we might live more fully as the witnesses you've called us to be. And may we be good listeners and good lovers of those around us, bringing the good news of the gospel to a world that is dying in their idolatry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.